So, this message is going to be about visualizing what Jesus looked like. And uh, other than this jug, he looked something like this. So this was the most accurate I could do of what Jesus looked like without having every single thing custom made for thousands of dollars. Um, so I want to give you a little bit of, before I get into the costume, I'm going to explain it all, um, why this is important. So back to you know when I was like six years old in Sunday school, that was when I first learned to picture scenes in the Bible. And these teachers were smart in the Sunday school days. They knew that when you have a group of wiggly six-year-old boys, you got to have some kind of visual aid to keep them, you know, or else they're going to completely spaz out. So um, what we used back, this was back before there were, you know, computers and videos and civilization and stuff like that. Um, but we used flannel graphs. Has anybody ever seen a flannel graph? You're all old. You're old. Um, but what it was, it was this big cloth board, and you had little cutout figures of the Bible characters, you know, David and Moses and Jesus, and you plastered them up on the board, you know, and then you could, the teacher would move them around to do the story. So that was the high-tech visual aid that we had back then. So that was Sunday school, but as I got older, I traded in my little white Bible with the illustrations in it for an adult Bible that was just words. And from teenage on, every Bible study I ever did was words, words and concepts. We never used pictures. We didn't try to visualize the scene. We tried to understand it. And so about three years ago, I had this idea of trying to, to be more visual in my studies. And when I got into it, I made this shocking discovery, which was when I tried to picture you know, major stories in the Bible in my mind, the pictures I had were still based on the flannel graphs back there when I was six years old. And the reason I knew is my pictures, the character was in them, but there was no background. It was just this plain, you know, Jesus, the, the woman with the issue of blood, comes up behind Jesus and touches his robe. My picture, they were out, you know, in a field or something like that. There's never any background because the flannel graph was just white. And so I was reading the, the Bible with words at a 62-year-old level, but I was visualizing the Bible at a six-year-old level. So I set out on this, I've been at this for two years now, full-time project about how to read the Bible like a human being, how to visualize the scriptures. And I found out that a lot of my pictures of Jesus and those people were wrong. So this is, this is more accurate. So what I'm wearing, this outer garment here, this is what the Bible calls an outer garment. It's a hymation in Greek. By the way, you can ask questions. So if you have a question at any point, raise your hand. And if I don't see you, you know, wave your hand around. And if I still don't see you, just hop up on the pew or you know, something. Um, this is a hymation. It's made of undyed, unbleached uh, linen. This came from Lithuania. Um, Underneath it is a chiton. This is your shirt or your tunic, as the Bible translates it. Um, and it's very simple. This came from Ukraine. Um, on my arm and my head, I'm wearing teflon. So teflon are phylacteries. They're little boxes that held scripture passages. So when the Bible talks about having this as a frontlet between your eyes, that's what it is. And the ones Jews wear today are these huge, chunky, black you know, boxes about two inches square. But in Jesus' day, they were little. Um, they've actually found examples of these, like at Masada and Qumran and stuff. So this is based on the first century version of Teflon. Um, I've also got tzitzit, tassels, um, so with the blue threads in them, like the authentic kind. And then my sandals are as close as I could get to Jesus's. They're... Uh, Barefoot sandals, they have no, no arch or anything like that. I'll, I'll pass one around later. Um, but uh, I'll pass the Teflon around and stuff too so you can see it. So um, let me just, before I dive in, I want to say something about clothing in general in Jesus' day. So these people were poor, like homeless poor, like not poverty level in the United States, 
70% of the people in Galilee in Jesus' day lived at or below subsistence level. So like barely enough money to put food in your mouth, that's the existence that they had. There was another 20% that were sort of stably above subsistence level. They weren't worried about day-to-day whatever. So when Jesus has the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, to us as Americans, that it's hard to starve in America, you know? <laughs> but in Jesus' day, there were times when, when people were so poor they actually sold themselves into slavery because slavery was a better life than what they had. You know, For instance, if you were a day laborer, a guy who had no farm but just tried to get a job every day, like in the parables where the boss comes to the village well and there's a bunch of guys standing around and he hires some of them and he hires some more. Those were the lowest part of society. They were actually below slaves in the social standing. And those people would often sell themselves into slavery just so they could eat. So people were really poor. So the average person in Jesus' day had two sets of clothing, maybe three if you were doing well. But two, you know, you had two of these and two of these, and that was it. Um, there are stories of families where the husband and wife shared the hymatia and the outer garment because they could only afford one. So presumably the husband went out of the house and did his stuff, and then he came home, and then the wife would take it and do hers, but they only had one outer garment between the two of them. So all these things about clothing have a, are based on the idea that this is a very poor society. Um, I forgot the clicker in the back. Yeah, it's in the bag. So maybe you can click to my first slide here. This is the chiton. We'll start with that. It's the inner garment. So again, it's unbleached, undyed linen, linen made from flax. So why do you think that, that the common people would have worn this instead of a nice white one or a colorful garment. Why did they just have this raw color? Okay, if you only got two of these, if you got to wear the thing for four days in a row, I would rather wear this color than white. <laughs> Why else might they have not bleached or dyed it? Yes, it's expensive. So the common people wore the cheapest variety, which was unbleached, undyed. The Pharisees wore white to symbolize their purity, but most other people wore this. So all those movies and stuff where you see Jesus with the white robes, yeah. <laughs> um, and this, this is brand new. Um, Jesus' garment would have been tattered, patched, stained, these were expensive, so you wore them until they literally wore out. Like in the Mishnah, there's a discussion. The Mishnah is sort of the Jewish commentary on the Torah. It's like two million words. It's enormous. Um, but there's a discussion in there among the rabbis about how big of a hole you can have in your, your garments, you know, how much of your junk people could see before you had to throw it out and get a new garment. So you passed your garment down to your children. You, this was a big deal. Another interesting thing is when your, your spouse died or a family member died, you rent your garment. So you were supposed to grab your chiton and tear it over your heart. And there were shorter mourning periods for a child, but if your spouse died, you mourned for 30 days and you wore that same shirt for 30 days with the tear over your heart. What do you think you did when the 30 days were over? You sewed it back up and you kept wearing it. So maybe for the rest of your life, you wore a shirt with a tear over your heart to remind you of your spouse's death, which I think is kind of a beautiful thing. So um, I got interested with the chiton. Um, it seemed like clothes were really valuable to them. So I started wondering, what would something like this actually cost in Jesus's day? So I want you to, to just take a wild guess in your mind. This, the shirt alone, it's a two and a half yards of fabric. What do you think a shirt would cost in Jesus' day? So don't say anything. Just, just get a number in your head for what you think this would cost, and then we'll run through the process. So a chiton, it's made from linen, which is made from flax, a plant. So to make uh, 
how do I say, you took the linen into raw fibers and then you spun the fibers. So just the process of getting it from the plant to the fibers, you pulled it up by the roots because the fiber went from one end of the plant to the other and you got the best fibers that way. You pulled it up, you dried it, you washed it, you soaked it for several days. This process was called redding and what it did was it started to rot some of the stem around the fibers and leave the fibers. So you redded it, you took it out, you dried it again, then you put it through this hand machine that was like, how do I say, it was like a shape like this, and you took it and you crunched it all down the stem, and you kept crunching it over and over again to break off the outer hull. Um, so you did that for a while, and then you scraped it with a board, and then you put it through a, a comb, you know, like nails in a board, and you had several different combs that you put it through, and you know, so anyway, this whole process, I figured for a shirt, would take close to 15 hours just to make the fibers. Um, now the fibers aren't thread yet. So how many yards of thread are in a yard of fabric? Anybody got a wild guess? Thousand, that's close. Um, this is like, 25 threads per inch. It's not that, you know, 400 thread per inch Egyptian cotton that you sleep on at night that's so plush. You know, at 25 threads per inch, if your fabric's a yard wide, that's 25 yards per inch. And then the fabric goes both ways. You know, the thread goes both ways. So that's 50 yards per inch. So a chiton like this at 20, 20 or 25 threads per inch is 4,300 yards of thread. And you can see why one of the first things they did in the Industrial Revolution is spinning thread. And you can see why, if it takes 4,000 yards of thread to make one shirt, there was tons of money in making thread. Um, in England, before the Industrial Revolution, single women were called spinsters because one of the few ways they could make money was spinning thread, and they were doing it constantly. So an unmarried single woman was known as a spinster because she was running around spinning thread all the time. So to spin 4,000 yards of thread, um, I looked at spinning blogs and stuff, and a good spinner with ancient tools can spin about a yard a minute. So that's 4,000 minutes, <laughs> 70 hours to spin the thread for one shirt. Isn't that wild? Then it took another 30-some hours to weave it on the hand looms that they had, another three hours to sew it. So 125 hours was my estimate to make a shirt. After I did the estimate, I found this video. This Norwegian group had discovered an old 1,700-year-old tunic in a glacier somewhere. And so they duplicated it exactly how it was made, and they had this herringbone weave and all this stuff. It took them 438 hours to make that shirt. So a lot of time to make a shirt. So the shirt on your back right now, what's it worth? What'd you pay for it? 20 bucks, 15. So if you made a shirt and it took you 125 hours of your time to make it, what dollar value would you put on it? Shout those out. 2,000? Somebody else? We'll take that, $2,000. So everybody in Jesus' day is walking around with a $2,000 shirt on. There's a neat little verse that says, if anyone would sue you and take your shirt, your chiton, give him your hymation as well. This thing has twice as much fabric in it as the, the shirt does. So if someone comes and takes your $2,000 shirt, give him your $4,000 outer garment too. <laughs> Does, does that verse seem a little different now that you know what those things actually cost? So imagine, flip to the next slide. So here's some of these verses. Jesus has got his boys out. They're on this, when Jesus sends out the 12, that was weeks or months that they were out there by themselves. So he's got them out somewhere in Galilee. They're not in Capernaum. And he says, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, nor even have two chitonas. So now, 
why do you think Jesus said to this group of guys, don't have two tunics? Did they all just have one? And everybody was like, oh, cool, I'm already. Some of them probably had two. So what do you do with your second tunic when you're a day's walk from home and Jesus says, I'm sending you out. You can only take one. What do you think they did with their extra tunic? Gave it away. Hallelujah. You know, what a Jesus moment. Then a few weeks later, they get home, and 16-year-old John comes into his mom, and she gives him a big old hug and says, oh, welcome home, boy. Let me do your laundry for you. Um, and John is like, uh. <laughs> and she says, where's that other shirt that I spent 125 hours weaving and working my fingers to the bone for you? And John says, um, Jesus told me to give it away. <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> but... We, we don't think of those moments because we don't realize how different it is from the modern world. That clothes were rare and expensive, and Jesus had asked them to give away half their clothes. Um, the last one, the one who has two kaitonas, that's kaiton, it's just got the Greek ending on it, is to share with the one who has none. So now, for you to share a shirt with somebody for 15 bucks is not a big deal. What would be a good modern analogy that would have the same weight as this, as what Jesus was asking for these people? Yeah. Uh-huh. Share your other car with the person who has none. Now, he's talking about within Israel, but the idea is, if there's somebody in your body that doesn't have a car, give them one or lend them one or... That's more the kind of thing that Jesus is asking and the kind of community that he's trying to build. So it's pretty crazy, isn't it? <laughs> so flip to the next slide. I guess I got my thing now. Let's see if I can make it work. Hymation. So this is a Greek vase that was in the Bible Lands Museum in Jerusalem. Um, but... If you see the Greek guy, he's got it draped over his body, and down in the back, there's the corner of his robe is hanging. You can sort of see on mine, there's a corner hanging down in the back. The difference between his robe and mine is mine is held on by safety pins, and his wasn't. Um, <laughs> you, you drape this over your body, and it's supposed to just hang there without any pins or anything. And there was an art to wearing these in upper-crust society, if you didn't drape your Hymatian properly, you were a real Philistine. You just, you know, that was totally uncool. Um, but it's really hard to put one of these on by yourself. So, if, again, if you're wealthy, you had a slave that dressed you and helped you put this garment on. Um, so this is about 5 by 10 feet. It's just a big rectangular piece of cloth. So you wore this to keep warm, it wasn't, it wasn't polite to go out in just your shirt. So like in the passage in where uh, they, Jesus meets the disciples and they're out on the boat after his resurrection, and he says, boys, you didn't catch any fish, did you? And they say, no. <laughs> they figure out it's Jesus, and it says Peter was stripped for work. It doesn't mean he was naked. It means he just had his chiton on. So he put on his outer, he put this thing on and then swam 100 yards to shore. Um, how would you be doing as a swimmer in this thing? <laughs> That's kind of nuts. <laughs> but it was not, you weren't supposed to, you know, be in pub, polite society in public without your outer garment. So he put his outer garment on and jumped into the sea like an idiot. Um, I bet he'd never done that before. So, big rectangle of fabric, you sort of, it goes over your shoulder, under your arm, around your back, and over your shoulder again. Um, women wore this garment too, just they had little pins and stuff that held it up here, whereas the men just sort of draped it. Um, it's like a toga, but a toga is more round, and this is a rectangle. So another cool thing about this is it has the zitzit, which are the little corner doohickeys. Um, in the Old Testament, it told you to wear a tassel or a fringe on your garment, and there was supposed to be a blue thread in there. Could you pass those around? Yeah. So these were made by some 
Jewish zitzit weaver and are supposed to follow all the, there's certain knots that you're supposed to use and they're spaced a certain way and all this stuff. I don't think the knot tying thing went back to Jesus's day, but the blue thread did. And the blue thread has a really interesting history. So blue is a color that's hard to get out of nature. Like making blue dyes was almost impossible in antiquity. And <clears throat> a dye that wouldn't fade or something like that, they just didn't have it. And then the people of Tyre discovered that there was this little mollusk, it was called a murex snail, and if they broke the shell in a certain place, they could extract this little bitty gland, and if you spritzed it out, it gave you this puke yellow liquid. Um, but the cool thing was, if you exposed that liquid to sunlight, the ultraviolet light would turn it purple. And if you treated it a little different way, it would turn sky blue. And that color wouldn't fade, it would stay in your clothes, um, and it was beautiful. So this dye became a huge industry. They killed millions of those snails. Because um, <laughs> it took a lot of snails to make the dye. Um, so that, that purple dye, Tyrian purple, eventually Rome expropriated the whole industry and made a law that only the senators and the emperors could wear purple. So purple got associated with royalty throughout history, even before Rome. So the, the blue in the zitzit, it's supposed to remind you of the law. You've always got this tassel dangling, but it's also a symbol of royalty that you as an, an Israelite were part of the family of God. And in Byzantine times, the recipe for making this was lost. It was a closely guarded secret. Because you had to treat it with certain ways. There's urine involved in how you treat it and, you know, some bizarre old stuff. But they rediscovered the process in the last 50 years. So there's now a place that's making genuine, this color is called tecolette. But there's a place that's making actual tecolette threads so that they can have authentic. Because for like 1,500 years, the Jews wore white tassels because they couldn't get the right blue. And it had to be the right, it had to be from the specific animal, it had to be the right color, and if we can't have that, then we have nothing. So you'll still see a lot of Jews go around with white tassels, but some of them now wear blue. So that's the zitzit. So, uh, oops, that was backward. So here's a little quiz. This is a picture that was in a, uh, what do you call it? Monastery for women. Covent, convent, yes. It was in a convent in Magdala in Israel. And this is floor-to-ceiling mural. And it's of the woman with the issue of blood. You know, she comes up behind Jesus saying, if I can just touch the fringe of his robe, I'll get well. So can you tell me what's wrong with this picture? Yes. Stripes? Stripes? Okay. They've got Jesus. He's actually wearing a prayer shawl. And those didn't come in for centuries later. So all the pictures of Jesus you see with the prayer shawl are wrong. What else is wrong? Okay, his robe is white. It should be more gray, like this. What else is wrong? Yeah, not quite right on the, the sandals, although we'll give him a pass on the sandal thing. There might have been some different designs. What else? Probably. <laughs> there, were no, there weren't paved roads in Jesus' day, except in town. If you walked from Capernaum to Chorazin, it was a dirt road the whole way. Where's, see the woman's hand there? Yes. Okay, she's got sort of a fringe, but Jesus' robe doesn't have one. And the other problem is, where's the tassel that she touched? This is actually a bit too long. It probably would have been in the small of your back. So all the pictures we have of this, the artists have made the woman down crawling on the ground, which makes absolutely no sense. Jesus is walking along with this crowd of people. And, and here's this woman down on the ground touching his feet, and people are tripping over her. And <laughs> so actually, she touched him back here, where the, the corner of his robe went down. And it's an interesting scene. I won't go terribly into this, but 
My Sunday school picture was this happened out in a field. I think it's most likely that it happened in Capernaum. And the streets there were very narrow, like this wide. And there was a 10-foot high stone wall on either side of the street. Because people lived in these compounds. There would be one door and then multiple little rooms and stuff. So imagine Jesus is walking down a crooked street this wide in a moving crowd of 100 people. This woman comes up behind and touches him. And he turns around and says, who touched me? So what happens to a moving crowd when the celebrity in the middle of it stops? Say what? They swarm him. They, they compress up against him. So this poor woman is trying to touch Jesus incognito and slip away. Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And the crowd forces her up against Jesus. And next to Jesus, anybody know who's standing next to Jesus? It's Jairus. He's going to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. Jairus was the head of the synagogue, which in those days was like the chief of police. He enforced all the local law. So this woman was not supposed to touch anybody. She came up behind Jesus, touched him in the small of his back. He turns around and says, who touched me? She's forced up against Jesus, and right next to him is the chief of police. So it says that she was trembling with fear. She was having a panic attack because she's trapped in this narrow alley <laughs> with Jesus and the chief of police, and she just did something wrong and she got caught. So you understand how she's feeling much more when you can see the scene instead of, oh, it was just out in, in some flannel field somewhere. <laughs> so, um, whoops. Yeah, this is right. Hymatian verses. We did the first one. Most of the crowds spread their Hymatia, another Greek ending, in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. So this is the triumphal entry where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Now, imagine that if, you know, it's saying spreading their cloaks or their coats are often the way they translate it. Picture spreading coats in the road in front of Jesus. And now picture spreading five foot by ten foot outer garments in the road in front of Jesus. It's a totally different picture. Now we've got like a red carpet, a big, wide, you know, it's all covered with cloth as opposed to, you know, the donkey tripping over the the fleece, <laughs> whatever. So I think that's cool. Third one there, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. What, what's happening there? What's the pledge? Uh-huh. His cloak was maybe the most expensive thing that he owned several thousand dollars worth of labor. So when he, he borrowed money from someone, he gave him his cloak as a pledge. So why were you supposed to give him back his cloak at night? To keep warm. This Again, it's a five foot by 10 foot piece of fabric. So you put it down on the ground, you laid on it, and you put it over, you slept in your outer garment. So not only did you wear this all day long, you slept in it too. Because um, again, fabric is expensive. So that brings new meaning to that verse from the Old Testament, that people were actually sleeping in these outer garments like this. So uh, I keep going backwards. The, the forward arrow is worn off, and you can't see it. Teflon. So this is called the head teflon. It's kind of slipping down. And then the arm teflon is wrapped around your arm like this. It goes three times around here. Here's the actual pouch. It's supposed to be next to your heart. Three times around your bicep, seven times around your arm, and then you wrap it around this middle finger like so. And today, these straps are black and they're you know like half an inch wide, so it's a totally different look, but in Jesus' day, it was much more minimal. So the idea of Teflon was, um, there's four places in the Old Testament where it talks about keeping the, the word as a frontlet between your eyes. And this was the way they interpreted that. So it's likely that Jesus actually wore these um, during his everyday life. He actually refers to them in one verse about the Pharisees making their fringes broad, and, or their fringes long and their, 
phylacteries broad, making the straps broad so they'd be more prominent. Um, but you wore these during the day. So what's your tan look like if you wear one of these? <laughs> you get nice lines on your arms. <laughs> so, uh, but these little pouches, this is actually, I had these custom made by a leather worker. And halfway through, he called me and he said, Tony, I can't make them as small as they were originally. So we compromised. And this is twice as big as what the originals were. They were postage stamp size. And you can see on the, on the screen, there are four little capsules in the head one. Why don't you pass that around? Each of those capsules held a rolled up passage of scripture. They took lamb parchment, so it was really thin and delicate, and they wrote really tiny, tiny little letters on it. And they rolled those up and put a piece of string on it, and then they stuck them in those four different pouches. So the four passages that refer to keeping the scripture as a frontlet between your eyes are all there in your forehead. And then there's one big passage here. I think it's the Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You shall serve the Lord with your whole heart. So, Jesus wore these funky little things. Um, this is what a first century example looks like. This was found at Masada. Um, after the Jewish revolt, the last of the rebels held out at this, this mountaintop fortress, and it took the Romans three years to capture it, and they all killed themselves in the end so they wouldn't get captured. Um, but they dug up this little Teflon case, and it's open now. You can see at the bottom the four little capsules of scripture. And it folded over, and there was a strap that went through the middle. And that's what they wore around their forehead. So this is an attempt to duplicate that thing. We don't have the scripture passages wrapped up inside. We have little pieces of wood because we're trying to look authentic, but we didn't need to be that authentic. Um, so sandals, those are what those are actual first century sandals. That's from a museum in Israel as well. But uh, they they're flat. They're like two pieces of leather. Here, let's pass one around. You want to grab it? I don't want to sit down and have a wardrobe malfunction here. <laughs> he doesn't wear these any other time. <laughs> sure. So these have rubber on the bottom because nobody makes, you know, sandals with no sole. But originally they were just two pieces of leather stitched together. Um, and then you had a toe thing that came through like on a flip-flop, and then it went around back around your ankle. So I want you to imagine it's 90 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem if you walk down along the, the Jordan River. Imagine walking 90 miles in those sandals. How do your feet feel? Sore? You're on paths. You're not on paved roads. So there's rocks and scraped up. Why do you think foot washing was such a big deal back then? <laughs> you, uh, everywhere you walked, you had sandals on. People in Israel did not own shoes. Shoes were just for the ultra-wealthy. So they only ever wore sandals. And in the dry season, you were walking on dirt roads, and, and their seasons in Galilee are sort of like Redding, where it's, there's a long dry period where it doesn't rain, and then it's wet in the winter. So in the summer, everything got super dusty, and your feet got dirt all over them. And in the winter, you walked on those same paths, and it was rainy, and so your feet got super muddy. So it was customary whenever you went to somebody's house that the host or a servant would wash your feet. Um, every time before a meal. So when Jesus, at the Last Supper, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he's doing the job of a servant when they come in to wash everybody's feet. And some people think that part of the reason Peter got so upset, oh, Lord, don't wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And Peter says, well, wash my hands and my head too. And Jesus is like, chilled. <laughs> but... The way they were seated in that dinner, there's some evidence based on a 
the way a triclinium was set up, that Peter was sitting in the servant seat of the person who was supposed to be doing this, and Jesus did it instead. So Peter is protesting because Jesus took his job and made him look bad and <laughs> whatever. It's also interesting, you know, if Peter was in the lowest seat, that just before this they had an argument about who was the greatest. Um, and Peter is not... The, the, peop, the person who was in the seat of honor was John, reclining in Jesus' bosom, who was the youngest one of the disciples. So Jesus reversed the order of status, and everybody got upset. So that's what sandals were like. So here's some sandal and teflon verses. I referred to the one, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Um, the second one there, the thong of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Again, untying your sandals was something a servant did for you. So John the, John the Baptist is saying this. So he's saying, I'm lower than the servant. I'm lower than a slave compared to Jesus. I'm not even worthy to come and a normal servant could do this, but this isn't a normal situation. And the way you undid a sandal was they had this little slider thing in the front. So you, you sort of push the slide up to make your sandals tight, and then you push the slide back down, and, and that made them loose. So that's how sandals worked in those days. And this is not part of my presentation. <laughs> so what questions do you got about this stuff? Yes? Well, there were paths, certainly, but the, the Roman roads that were paved, there were very few of those in Jesus' time. Most of them were paved after Jesus' death. So you still had a road there, but it wasn't a developed, you know. Right. Yeah, you'd probably have cart ruts and stuff, but... Again, the common people, how do I say? Not many people even had a donkey. So most people walked everywhere. Um, but yeah, the roads would be all torn up and have rocks in them and stuff like that. Yes? Well, the, the wealthy, there was more you know, colors and all this kind of stuff. And there were fashion things that the Romans did. But I think the common people were not real worried about that. Yes, sir. Right. No idea. <laughs> I was just using that as an example of foot washing. We did a, a simulated Roman meal, and we had, you know, there's different cups you have, and a slave that brings a basin and pours water over your hands, and there's all this ceremonial stuff that they did. One or two more? If you were a bar mitzvah comes from the coming of age ceremonies, you became a son of Israel. So that was the point where you took all this stuff on and you were liable to actually follow the law. Whereas before, you were viewed as, you know, this doesn't apply to you yet, you're too young. Um, oh, I'm vague on this. There's some evidence that there was a similar ceremony for women, but not much. So, yeah. So it's, yeah. So Jesus going to the temple at 1213 may have been connected with that ritual.
Yep. Three, seven, and then around your palm. Three around your bicep, seven around your forearm. I don't know. <laughs> Some of this is, it's not certain whether they did it the same way when Jesus was there. I'm basing this on current practice, but there's, you know, there's no fossils of someone's hand with the leather around it. <laughs> so nobody really knows for sure. Yes. Worn what? I doubt it, but I'm not sure. At, at Jesus' time, it was, it was a couple centuries later where things got really strict about women can't participate in this and that. In Jesus' time, women could participate in the synagogue services. There was some evidence that, that they could sometimes be parts of quorums or do readings and stuff. But as time went on, the rabbis got stricter and stricter, and they really... Um, Again, this, is, this does not represent Jesus at all, but a couple centuries later, there's a saying that it's, it's uh, how's it go? It's better to, yes, yes, and that's, that's in the daily prayer. Yes, there's another one where um, it's better to, I don't know what, make your daughter a prostitute than teach her the Torah or something like that. Um, but in Jesus's day, there's evidence that girls went to the to the classes when they were young as well. So a lot of the anti-woman sentiment was actually a later development. Sure. So, all right. Right, where he's going to correct how I pronounced all those Greek words. Um, so, one last question: What did you learn today? What What's a fact that stood out to you? Or you remember? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to have more than two sets. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Okay, called to a life of servanthood. I'm glad I don't have to wear this because it's hot. <laughs> yes. Yeah, when, when David comes home to his wife, Michael, she's, she's really mad about this. How the king of Israel debased himself before the maidens? It's, it's sort of, um, I saw one, one rough translation of that was like, how the king of Israel let his junk hang out in front of all the maidens. <laughs> but yeah, some, sometimes the, the actual 
wording is, is a little coarser than what we're used to. So um, let's, let's end with the question for Jesus here. And you've learned a lot about the clothes he wore. I want you to shut your eyes and just imagine him for a minute with these clothes on. And he's not a blue-eyed Aryan European. He looks like a modern Iraqi with brown skin. He's got curly black hair. He's got his teflon on his forehead. He's wearing his gray robe. Um, so just picture him for a minute. And then we'll ask, hey, Jesus, is there anything you want to tell me about your clothes that you wore? What did you like about those clothes and what didn't you like, Jesus? All right, so, so what I felt like Jesus said a slipper image came to mind. You know those pink, fluffy slippers that you put on with the... As Jesus was saying, what I wouldn't have given to have a pair of those. <laughs> so take a minute and turn to your neighbor and tell them whatever you heard or sensed or whatever came into your mind. Just grab someone right next to you and tell them. I'm just realizing that clock doesn't work. <laughs> I was thinking, okay, I need to go until a quarter of, and yes, I went way too long. So, uh, communion. So Jesus, the way they ate bread in those days is they made little loaves, and it was hard, and they dipped them in a sauce. So the way we do communion here is a lot like the way they ate. And Jesus made communion part of a meal so that at mealtime we would remember him. So the way we do communion here is you just come up, there are dishes here, you take a cracker and you dip it in and take it back to your seat. And we come up through the middle and go back around the outsides. And then when everyone has, a, has your cracker, we will eat together. And this is open communion. So if you're a believer of any denomination or you want to accept Jesus today, come on up and you can take communion.
took bread, blessed it, said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. So let's take and remember what Jesus did for us. Jesus, thanks for you just being you. We appreciate what you've done for us, the freedom and the joy and the, the rest that you've made possible. And you did it in a really hard way, and we're thankful for that as well. So bless us as we go out today. Have a peaceful day and a restful day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go in peace. Um, I'm going to stick around up here for a little bit. If you want a closer look at anything, you can just come on up.